This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. I'm your host, Dakota Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon will be updating on campus news, and then I'll be delivering local news. After that, we'll be hearing from climate scientist Zachary Loeb about the polar vortex's role in last week's cold snap. Then... Cutter will be delivering some national news, and we'll be hearing from Maddie Erskine with her interview with local musician Jay LeCavalier. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and speaking to a reporter from The Collegian. To conclude the show, Cutter will be giving some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello and welcome back to CSU's Weekly News. I'm Ellie Shannon and we are in our sixth week of the semester here at Colorado State University. We have entered phase three of CSU's strategic plan made because of COVID-19 and saliva tests are available for students, staff, and faculty. If your test comes back saying you must get an additional nasal swab, those are available outside of Canvas Stadium. Expanding on COVID-19, scientists at CSU have continued their own research on developing a COVID-19 vaccine and a vaccine that can be used in future pandemics, according to Mary Gooden of CSU's College News. Ray Goodrich, the director of the Infectious Disease Research Center at CSU and lead investigator of the Solavax vaccine candidate, received $3.1 million from the National Institutes for Health for his team and him to progress in human studies in the future. Currently, there are four vaccine candidates. This is great news for CSU's health teams and developments on this are to come in the future. Both the women's and men's basketball teams will be competing against the Air Force Academy Saturday, February 27th, so make sure to tune into that. Make sure to also listen to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5. I'm Ellie Shannon with your weekly news and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today. Colorado is getting close to its goal of vaccinating 70% of people age 70 and older. According to Janet Orave and Darren Whitehead and Nine News, Colorado health leaders and members of the vaccine task force provided an update on COVID-19 Thursday. Officials said that more than 130,000 doses were delayed coming to Colorado this week due to last week's cold snap. Brigadier General Scott Sherman said that the delayed doses were expected to arrive in the state between Thursday and Saturday. Sherman said that 79,000 Pittsburgh doses were expected Thursday, as well as more than 15,000 doses on Friday and at least 5,000 doses on Saturday. Sherman said that they were expecting to receive more than 46,000 Moderna doses Friday and more than 51,000 doses no later than Monday. Sherman said Colorado will begin receiving 218,000 doses per week the first week of March. Sherman said the state has the capacity to administer 300,000 to 400,000 doses per week. Officials also noted that the state is close to achieving its goal of vaccinating 70% of people 70 and older in Colorado. As of February 18th, over 330,000 people over the age of 70 has received at least their very first dose. Fort Collins City Council has officially put a proposed plastic bag ban on the April ballot. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, the ballot measure will appear on the April 6th municipal election ballot. It will ask voters if the city should ban single-use plastic bags in large grocers, effective May 2022. The policy includes a 12-cent fee for paper bags, and the council will be able to expand the policy to include other business types and other types of plastics in the future. The bag fee would be split 50-50 between establishments charging the fee and the city, which would use its share to implement the program. People using food stamps and other government assistance would be exempt from the fee. Council approved the ballot measure Tuesday on a 5-2 vote, with Mayor Wade Troxell and Council Member Ken Summers opposed. The City of Fort Collins is seeking volunteers to serve on the Landmark Preservation Commission. According to a city press release, the commission reforms all duties related to the preservation of historic landmarks, including the designation of sites, structures, objects, or districts as landmarks, and the review and approval or rejection of plans for the construction, alteration, demolition, or relocation of any such site, structure, object, or district. Decisions of the commission are final unless appealed to the city council. 
To be eligible, applicants must have at least one year of residency within the Fort Collins Growth Management Area and must meet the following background criteria. Per the city code, this commission requires four seats to be held by members that are professionals in preservation-related disciplines, including, but not limited to, architecture, architectural history, archaeology, history, urban planning, American studies, American civilization, cultural geography, and cultural anthropology. Applications are available at fcgov.com boards and are due March 15th. Additional information is available at fcgov.com boards. That is all the local news I have for today. In five minutes, we'll be hearing from climate scientist Zachary Loeb about the polar vortex. We'll be right back. CSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is 970-491-2388. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Zachary Labe, a climate scientist at Colorado State University, here to talk with us about the sudden extreme cold temperatures we experienced last week and the polar vortex. Dr. Labes, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I'm sure many people listening experienced similar extremely cold temperatures last week. You may have heard that the cold was due to something called the polar vo vortex. Would you be able to tell us what the polar vortex is? Sure. The polar vortex is interesting because it's kind of become a buzzword in the media over the last couple of years. And what the polar vortex actually is, is you can think of it almost like a storm system, but it's high in the atmosphere, something we call the stratosphere. So it's these winds that are blowing counterclockwise high up in the atmosphere over the Arctic. And it's this feature that's always there. It's weaker in summer, and then in winter, it's stronger. But why we care about here where we live at the surface of Earth is that the strength of the polar vortex during winter really can determine whether or not we get these extreme cold outbreaks. So sometimes in the middle of winter, this polar vortex, which is usually strong in the middle of winter, it actually can weaken. And when the polar vortex weakens high up in the atmosphere, it can then affect the jet stream. So when I talk about the jet stream, that's the movement of storms around the Earth. And it really helps to move air masses, warm and cold air masses around. So as that polar vortex becomes weaker, it allows the jet stream to almost become more wavy or sort of buckle. And that allows cold air to come out of the Arctic into portions like where we live here in Colorado. So it's really that this this system of winds high in the atmosphere really determines these extreme cold outbreaks we can get in Colorado. As we've already seen, um, the polar vortex has been freezing places that haven't seen snow in years or decades. 
causing blackouts in places like Texas last week. So why is the polar vortex affecting so much of the U.S. now? And what is interesting, again, is that polar vortex is always there high in the atmosphere during winter. But it's only occasionally when we get this influence from the polar vortex on this extreme cold. It doesn't happen every single winter. So what this case, we had one of these really unusual events where the polar vortex weakened quite a bit. And this was back in January. And then it takes time, but eventually that cold air moved down into areas that have not experienced cold in quite a few years, giving us this really extreme weather reaching even as far south as the Mexico-Texas border. Do you know how much of this can be attributed to climate change? Yeah, so that's what I work on. So it's a really interesting question because we now know that the polar, polar vortex is so important for our weather during the winter. So the question is, is climate change impacting the strength of the polar vortex? And to be honest, we're still quite uncertain. It's, it's an active area of research, but it's very difficult to disentangle sort of all the pieces of the puzzle that affects the strength of the jet stream, which then affects the cold weather. So scientists are actively working on it. They run climate model experiments and like idealize perfect worlds to see what would happen as the climate warms and if it affects the polar vortex or not. But it's still really an active question that a lot of people are thinking about. We just don't have a really good answer quite yet. Will the polar vortex um, return in the future? And if so, do you know how frequently um, in terms of going way out of where it usually is? Yes, that's a great question. So back to your climate change question. One thing I can confidently say is that the frequency of extreme cold is projected to decrease over the next over the 21st century. However, that doesn't mean there won't be any cold we still can expect cold outbreaks and even record cold at times. And it's often going to be due to this visitation of the polar vortex in the next you know, few decades. So yes, we can expect the polar vortex to affect our weather going forward in the future. But really the long-term trend from climate change will be a reduction in the amount and frequency of these types of extreme events. So you said that they were able to detect the movement of the polar vortex back in January. Uh, How easy is it to predict major weather events like this? That's another great question. So meteorologists and climate scientists, we really like to follow the polar vortex because it is this source of predictability for the weather. So meteorologists back in January could tell that the polar vortex was weakening, and therefore they could kind of forecast multiple weeks in advance that extreme cold would likely affect parts of the central United States. So really monitoring this this storm system is extremely important for predicting the weather and allows meteorologists to have longer and better predictions than they would have otherwise for these types of cold outbreaks several weeks in advance. Do you know if uh, extreme temperatures caused by the polar vortex will be damaging ecosystems that normally don't get this sort of temperature? Yes, I think that's a really interesting question that we we are going to find out soon. (laughs) Um, You know, we are now seeing these really extreme impacts, as I mentioned, reaching all the way to Mexico. And areas along the Texas-Mexico border receive several inches of snow for the first time in decades. So the question is, you know, how is this going to impact plants? And in some cases in these areas of Texas, plants had already started blooming for the spring and then experienced this extreme cold. So it's likely we're going to see later over the next couple of weeks, really the impacts to all of the ecosystems for both plants and animals. So do you think that these extreme temperatures are going to be returning anytime soon? And should governments and people be prepared for that? I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, but it's, it's very challenging to predict these types of extreme events years in advance. But what I can say is that 
yes, we can expect more types of extreme weather events sometime in the next few decades. Perhaps the polar vortex returns next year. Perhaps it takes, you know, multiple decades from now to have these types of extremes. But I think what this current event really highlights is how susceptible our infrastructure is to extreme weather, not just cold outbreaks, but it also could be heat waves. And we know that climate change is going to increase extreme weather events like heat waves. And I think this really highlights the amount of investments we need to make in our infrastructure to prepare for more extreme weather over the next few decades. So what do you think the biggest takeaway should be from all of this? I, I think there's a couple takeaways, one being um, that to emphasize that even though climate change is real, it's happening, it's warming, we still can expect, you know, occasional cold outbreaks and record cold like we just had. Um, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the earth is warming and we are expected to receive less and less cold outbreaks like this, both in the magnitude and frequency of them. And I think it also, um, this event to take away is just highlighting how susceptible we are to extreme weather. And with extreme weather expected to increase from climate change, we really need to think of all the ways that people and infrastructure and ecosystems are going to be impacted. All right, that is all the questions I have. Again, I have been speaking with Dr. Zachary Labe. You can find him and his work on Twitter with his handle at ZLabe. Dr. Labe, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Once again, that was Zachary Loeb. We'll be right back with national news, followed by an interview with musician Jay LeCavalier. Support for KCSU comes from the Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated with American Family Insurance. With offices located in Fort Collins and Greeley, protection, peace of mind, and trust has been their priority since 1992. Learn more about Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated and American Family Insurance at lisarinkjob at amfam.com. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU-FM. We just heard from Ivy Winfrey and researcher Zachary Labe. This is National News Highlights for Tuesday, February 23rd. Illinois is the first state to eliminate cash bail options. According to Cheryl Corley and National Public Radio, the new legislation will remove the ability for jail release based on cash bail payment. Cash bail has been criticized due to the inequity it creates for criminal justice based on socioeconomic status. The new law, called the Illinois Pretrial Fairness Act, includes a variety of changes for criminal justice. These new measures include required police body cameras, expansion of training requirements for law enforcement, victim compensation, and others. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker said, quote, This legislation marks a substantial step towards dismantling the systemic racism that plagues our communities, our state, and our nation, and brings us closer to true safety, true fairness, and true justice, end quote. Law enforcement associations in the state have criticized the new legislation by claiming that it's anti-police. The new law will go into effect on July 1st of this year, but it will not be put into place fully until the beginning of 2023 in order to work out challenges during the transition period. President Joe Biden held a ceremony to honor the national COVID-19 death toll reaching over 500,000. According to David E. Sanger and Cheryl Gay Stolberg at the New York Times, bells rang at the National Cathedral and flags at the Capitol were lowered to half-staff around 5 p.m. Monday. In the ceremony, 
Biden urged Americans to avoid letting these tragedies become normal and unimportant. In respect for those who died of COVID-19 and in support of their families, Biden empathized with families and friends of victims discussing his experiences with loss. Biden lost many members of his family throughout his career. More Americans have died from COVID-19 than in World War I, World War II, and the Vietnam War combined. Atlanta, Georgia formed the largest free food forest in the U.S. According to Carly Ryan at CNN, the forest's purpose is to address food insecurity. The land it lies on was expected to become townhomes until the Atlanta Conservation Fund bought it with plans for the forest, receiving a grant from the U.S. Forest Service and support from the city of Atlanta. The food forest is 10 minutes from the airport and contains 7.1 acres of land and thousands of plants. Pesticides also aren't used in the forest, which is in a neighborhood where the nearest grocery store is a 30-minute bus ride away. One in six Georgia residents deal with food insecurity, and one in three people in the neighborhood are considered to be below the poverty line. Over 1,000 volunteers support the forest, with more than 50 working each day at times. President Joe Biden increased pandemic assistance for small businesses, as well as minority and women-owned businesses. According to Zeke Miller at AP News, Biden says that this comes after smaller businesses struggled to get necessary aid due to large corporations taking advantage of economic support that was not intended for them. This support comes with $1 billion towards independent contractors and sole proprietors like home contractors and beauticians, which are often owned by people of color and women. This will allow for lending to ex-convict-owned businesses as well, which were previously unable to get loans if a person with a felony owned 20% of the business or more. New loans for small businesses will also have opportunities for loan forgiveness. In continuation of a legal fight between the district attorney of Manhattan and former President Donald Trump, the Supreme Court chose not to intercede in the enforcement of a grand jury subpoena for his tax records. According to Christine Phillips and John Freitz at USA Today, Trump has previously dismissed the investigation on his tax records and continually has fought legal battles related to his taxes. His records may not become public still, though this would allow for the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, to investigate these records in support of another investigation into hush money paid out during the presidential campaign in 2016 and criminal activity in the Trump campaign. If you missed any part of the show so far, feel free to listen online after the show at kcsufm.com news or on our Spotify at KCSU News. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for national news. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Up next, we'll be hearing from Maddie Erskine and local musician Jake LeCavalier. Hi, my name is Maddie Erskine, local music director here at KCSU, and welcome to this week's virtual in-studio. Today, I am super excited to introduce you all to Jay LeCavalier, who some of you may know from other local band, The Crooked Rugs. Jay is releasing a new solo album called Slow Transformations. To start off this in-studio, this is Feels Like Nothing by Jay LeCavalier from his new album, Slow Transformations.
You just heard Feels Like Nothing by Jay LeCalvier off of his soon-to-be-released album, Slow Transformations. Jay was kind enough to meet with me on Zoom to chat about this new album and the inspiration that went behind it. First, if you could just introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns so listeners can know who's talking. Okay, uh, I'm Jay LeCavalier, and you can use he, him for me. Perfect. So you wrote, recorded, and produced Slow Transformations predominantly by yourself. Um, Do you just want to talk a bit about what that process was like? Yeah, so um, it's an ever-growing process, really. Um, I've always just kind of done things myself, mostly just because of a lack of connectivity with professionals and just a lack of funding. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. It's uh, it's gotten a lot better over the years. I think for my first album, I made a lot of mistakes yeah. in the recording process specifically that I didn't this time around. I did a lot of like DI stuff for the first album, which means just like plugging mm-hmm. instruments directly into my computer pretty much. And I did that like with an acoustic guitar for a lot of it. And I think it sounds kind of synthetic and tinny. Yeah. So I used I used a lot of different microphones for stuff on this album. Even instruments that I could conceivably DI, like an electronic keyboard or something. Um, oh, that's I just really cool. up everything. So I think it yeah. has a much more organic sound. Definitely. It's really fun how you can mess with the sound of stuff just so much, just based on how it's mic'd. <laughs> Yeah, and plus I also uh, I also play with the uh, the Crooked Rugs local mm-hmm. band, and we're also super DIY, and that's a much more collaborative project as well. So I've learned a lot just from playing with those guys and just from bouncing ideas off of each other as well. So yeah, that leads into one of my other questions: is is there a difference in your approach and just the general process and making of music um, with the Crooked Rugs versus your solo music? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's um, a huge genre so, difference, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's definitely a genre difference. There's also, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about there, but uh, I'd say the most significant difference is just that Crooked Rugs is really like a cur- collaborative thing. Like I've even come to the group with songs that I wrote, and when we get around to recording them or working on them, it's completely different by the end. And that's the case regardless of who brings something to the table. Yeah. Whereas um, this is a lot more my own thing too. And it's also uh, another significant difference is that I definitely have a role in the Crooked Rugs, or at least one that I place upon myself. Like yeah. I play keyboards in that band and it's a pretty psych rock heavy band where there's a lot of like interactions between two different guitarists and stuff and I kind of see myself as somewhat of like a pad between the two guitars in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. in the Crooked Rugs but writing for my solo stuff it's a lot more open-ended. I play a lot of different instruments not just keyboards so um, it gives me an opportunity to stretch myself I guess. (laughs) Yeah How, how many different instruments did you play in this album? A bunch. There's uh, there's three different types of keyboards. I messed around with a drum machine a little bit, played harmonica on a few songs. I did some light percussion with like small hand drums and stuff. Yeah, the shaker. I really, I really liked how that turned out. <laughs> that is a homemade shaker. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, and I played, uh, Obviously, there's there's guitar, but there's also like electric guitar, which I've been experimenting more with different uh, different tones I can get from pedals and different amps and stuff. And uh, ukuleles on there too. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> Any instrument you can imagine, really. <laughs> I Just really also lying around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also really like the like acoustic guitar lines that you wrote. Um, just what is your songwriting process like? And are there any like musicians that help inspire that? The songwriting process, it's, for me, it's always like, we, I guess you asked specifically about the acoustic guitar parts, but yeah, that's kind of what comes first most of the time. Even when I write a song that's like pretty keyboard heavy, which there isn't a lot of that on this album, but I have more stuff like that in the works. It usually starts on the acoustic guitar just because it's so easy to just pick it up and just like sit down on the couch and just mess around. So that's that's where a lot of it comes from is just experimentation. But sometimes when I'm feeling kind of stagnant, um, and this kind of 
segues into the other part of your question, but if I'm having trouble coming up with ideas on my own, I'll try to learn songs uh, by other people, but I never, I never finish it. Yeah. <laughs> I usually like will start learning a song by somebody and it'll give me a new idea, either like some new chord progression or some new like picking pattern or something. And I look up to a lot of different people for that. When I was working on my first album, I was listening to a lot of Elliot Smith and some of the like emo folk yeah. people like that. That's where a lot of that came from. But for this album, I've been listening to a lot more, um, some more like contemporary stuff. Like I listen to a lot of Bibio these days, if you've ever heard of Bibio. Yeah. Um, and some more contemporary stuff. And I've also been listening to a lot of like some of the acoustic guitar music from like the 60s and 70s as well. So a lot of like Pink Floyd and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that has played into it as well. So Yeah, I can definitely hear that like 60s inspired aspect to it. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I really like your um, the houseplant song. Is there a specific plant that you own that helped inspire that? Definitely. Uh, it was a small barrel cactus that I found. Yay. It's unfortunately no longer alive, so may it rest in peace. But uh, I'm learning how to take care of plants. Yes. But yeah, I, I understand. Uh, back when back when we were playing, when playing live was like a regular thing. That one was definitely a crowd favorite. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's very laid back, and <laughs> down to earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So, what impact do you hope that this album has on listeners? Well, I guess for me, like a lot of it just comes down to the title track, like the last one on the album. That's definitely like the most significant one for me emotionally at this point. And I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that song in particular is, it just kind of came to me in this moment where I was kind of reflecting on all the stuff I've done with music so far. And just looking back at like the first album I released and just, I mean, when I listen to it, I can just feel that I was in a very, very different place. Like it's a lot sadder of an album and just my values and my goals and aspirations about everything in life were very different. And that wasn't even like two years ago that that one came out. So I've just changed a lot as a person and I don't know. It's those types of changes don't really like happen overnight yeah. either. So that's kind of where the title of that song comes from, I guess. And it's it's just kind of it's also like this emotionally vague thing too because it's not necessarily like I'm happy about like changing and stuff, but I'm not like sad about it either. It's just different and it just it's happens. kind of jarring sometimes. Yeah, um, definitely. So. I kind of wanted to bring that feeling to people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me a cruel person or not. <laughs> I, I think it's relatable. I think everyone does have their own kind of slow transformations. We all change throughout time. And so it's definitely, yeah, it's it's a, it's kind of a tough feeling for sure. Like not everyone feels happy about the changes, but it's very relatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just everyone does it. Everyone changes. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it might sound like a paradox, but I guess change is like the only constant we yep. have in life. <laughs> yeah, the, the classic paradox. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there just anything else that you would like listeners to know? Um, the album comes out the 15th. So that's super exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really soon. It's like a week away. Um, but a few days away when this airs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other things to know, just if you do listen to it, Thank you very much. It means a lot just to have people hear it. Um, And I also wanted to give thanks to um, another local musician, Joe Babb. She plays with a folk duo called the Annie Oakley. And she also has a solo project called Spinster. I met her about a year ago, actually, when she moved up here. And um, she's inspired me a lot as a songwriter. And um, She did background vocals on the song this time on the album. Special thank you for Jay for chatting with me about this new album on Zoom. And if you missed any of this in studio, it will be up on our website this Wednesday at kcsufm.com. Again, that was Maddie Erskine and Jayla Cavalier. We'll be right back with our COVID-19 update here on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins with the Rocky Mountain Review. 
KCSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is 970-491-2388. This is Ivy. And this is Coda. Here at KCSU 90.5. Catch the news Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. after listening to some great music to hear about local issues, campus events, and national news. Only at 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. In about five minutes, we'll be speaking to Aiden Nas from the Collegian about the city of Fort Collins' new equity and inclusion office. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is COVID-19 updates for February 23rd. Colorado State University has recorded recorded a cumulative total of over 2,200 cases since May of last year. In the past week, the university has seen a spike in new cases, similar to the spike seen in fall 2021 after Halloween and up to Thanksgiving. The university asks that students, staff, and faculty use the symptom reporter to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Larimer County remains at a medium risk score for COVID-19 transmission. There are over 19,000 cases in the county, and 223 people have died from COVID-19. There are 338 outbreaks in the county, and nearly 80,000 people have been vaccinated. On the state's dial framework, Larimer County remains at a level yellow, concern. In the past 24 hours, the county recorded 72 new positive cases, and every day in the past two weeks saw a minimum of 15 new cases. No day in the past two weeks saw over 10% of all tests administered come back positive, and Lermer County's 14-day case rate is around 270 per 100,000 residents, which is considered high. 16 COVID patients are currently in the hospital, and overall hospital utilization is at 60%. ICU utilization is at 63%. The county is on an overall downward trend when it comes to new cases of the virus, as well as COVID-19 hospital patients each day. Around one in three Larimer County residents have been tested for COVID-19, and about 6% of all tests come back positive. Statewide, there are over 421,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 3,800 outbreaks. Nearly 5,900 deaths were recorded among cases, with over 5,700 of those deaths being a direct result of COVID-19 complications. 2.5 million people have been tested in the state. The state's vaccine equity outreach team is working with Governor Polis and various community organizations to create over 175 vaccine equity clinics. These efforts also include public health agencies and Colorado's native tribes. The team's goal is to reduce health inequity in COVID-19 prevention by vaccinating 70% of eligible members in these communities. Some organizations affiliated with this effort include the Southern Ute Mountain Tribe, the Whittier Neighborhood Association in Denver, Southern Colorado Harm Reduction Association, as well as a variety of libraries, schools, religious groups, and health organizations. The majority of these groups are in the Denver metro area. The United States has over 28.2 million recorded cases of COVID-19 and over 500,000 deaths. On Monday, cases increased by nearly 60,000 cases and deaths by around 1,400. In the past 14 days, cases have reduced by 40%, deaths have decreased by 28%, and hospitalizations went down by 31%. Southern Colorado and Northern Texas are some of the current hotspots when it comes to new cases, and the White House marked the nation surpassing 500,000 deaths yesterday with a ceremony in solidarity with those who lost family and friends with capital flags at half-staff in honor of the dead. 
the only way for those not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine to protect themselves and others from virus transmission and complications is by washing your hands for 20 seconds regularly, wearing a face mask or cloth face covering, avoiding touching your face, and staying home when possible. Information from this segment was gathered from the CSU COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, and the Centers for Disease Control. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Now we're going to be hearing from the Collegian about the new Fort Collins Equity and Inclusion Office. All right, today I am joined by Aiden Nas from the Collegian to talk about his story related to the Equity and Inclusion Office that Fort Collins City is going to be opening. So to start off with, how did the city decide that this office was needed? This is part of, from what I could see, a sort of years-long trend in the city government to advance equality in a bunch of areas. Over the past few years, the city has put resources towards increasing equality for the LGBTQ community. And in March of last year, adopted a new resolution objective to advance equity for all, leading with race so that a person, person's identity or identities is not a predictor of outcomes. And then what will the office do to serve the community? And how do you think that this will impact CSU students potentially? So that's one of the difficult things to answer right at this point in the process. Um, One of the reasons why they were having these meetings was to get community advice before they fully finalized um, what all the responsibilities of the office are going to be. So hopefully uh, the office will have a positive impact on the CSU community, but I can't speak to um, exactly what role it will play. And then I know that details are not super great right now, but um, what will the office include in terms of staff members? So at this point, we know that it will consist of an executive role um, and a supporting uh, office and that's pretty much what I know. Um, and then how is the city included the community of Fort Collins in its hiring process so far? Uh, so, so far they've had four online meetings um, with um, uh, community members um, open to the public, and three of which were in Spanish um, and one of which was in English. I attended the, the English one because I'm not confident enough in my Spanish abilities to uh, report on uh, the other meetings. But yeah, during those meetings, they basically asked for the advice of, of community members, community stakeholders in what, what traits the office should have, what sort of responsibilities it should have, uh, who should be a part of the office. And then who is moderating these meetings and why is that important and different compared to other Uh, meetings held by the city? Um, So these meetings were held by, uh, they were moderated by Alma Vigo Morales, uh, and she is um, a, uh, the co-founder of a local um, consulting firm that, uh, Diversity Solutions Group, that often um, is uh, hired by companies or uh, local governments or other organizations to um, uh, address uh, equality issues within those organizations. Um, and so I think the importance of having her there to moderate the meetings was to have someone independent, um, someone experienced in um, these sorts of issues to uh, better communicate with the community what the city was looking for, um, but also, you know, remain independent. And then what are some of the markers of the ideal candidates right now? I know that there has been some division on that, um, at least according to residents and employees attending these meetings, what would they so far prefer to see? So the, the meeting that I attended, community members, so there were, there were a few common threads. People would like to see someone with a diverse background in that role, someone who can gain community trust, can interact uh, regularly with our marginalized communities. And I also heard 
people express the desire for uh, someone from Colorado, um, someone who already has a sense of Colorado culture. People had a lot of uh, different suggestions, and I think that city officials took a lot away from those meetings. And then the city is also adopting the equity indicators along with this. Can you tell us just what that means? Yeah, so that um, that's actually been something happening over the past year, I believe. Um, and it's sort of a partnership with um, an outside organization, the Institute for um, uh, State and Local Governance. They're in the process of gathering data from Fort Collins and basically using that data to put together something called the equity dashboard. And that's my sense of it is it's going to be used to target different areas in which the the city can advance equity. All right. Thank you so much. Again, that was Aiden Nas from The Collegian. And if you want to read his article, you can go to thecollegian.com and then click on the news tab. Again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Now we're going to be right back with tech news in about a minute. And you just heard from Aiden Nas again from The Collegian. And before that, we heard a little bit about COVID-19 updates. Now we'll be right back. KCSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is 970-491-2388. My most brilliant creation yet. Yes, master. Igor, hand me the science truth. What about the sprig of a trivia plant? Good idea. Now for the gas of laughter. You forgot the frog's breath. Stand back. Yes, it's alive. It's alive. Science Matters, coming up next. Join me, DJ Attorney at Law. And me, DJ Pompey. We'll catch you there for a truly electrifying time. You just heard about COVID-19 updates, as well as a story by Adrian Nas for the Collegian regarding Fort Collins' new Equity and Inclusion office. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. This is Tech News for Tuesday. Google added new privacy labels in the Apple App Store for the Gmail app. They were recently added to YouTube this month, and according to Mitchell Clark at The Verge, the privacy label explains what content the Gmail app saves from the user's device. This explains what is being used and for what purpose. For example, a name may be collected for product personalization, while an email address or contact list could be collected for app functionality. The privacy labels intend to tell users what the app could potentially access rather than what they will definitely access, and the labels are submitted to Apple. The privacy label for Google specifically says that it won't collect names, home addresses, or phone numbers for contact information since it only requires the email address for functionality. In other Apple-related news, almost 30,000 MacBooks faced infection from malware, according to Alexis Benveniste and Claire Duffy at CNN Business. Impacted devices include Macs from all around the world. The new malware doesn't have a clear goal, according to researchers at Red Canary security firm, and the virus runs natively on the M1 chip used in Apple computers. The malware is called Silver Sparrow, and it's infected computers in over 150 different countries with a focus on North American and European countries. While the malware has been identified in nearly 30,000 computers, that doesn't mean there aren't unidentified unidentified devices also being impacted by Silver Sparrow. Google fired AI ethics founder Margaret Mitchell, claiming she violated their code of conduct by moving files outside of Google. 
According to BBC Technology, Google has faced criticism since late last year due to issues related to unions, diversity, and retaliation on employees. Mitchell and another former employee, Timnit Gebruel, continually worked for diversity and fought against censorship in the company. Mitchell specifically criticized Google for firing Gabriel, who also co-authored a research paper that criticized some flaws in AI systems, including one created by Google, and they asked her to retract it. Some critics are concerned that Mitchell's firing may be an act of retaliation as well. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. We'll be right back with weird news and our weather report in about two minutes. Would you like to be a part of a rising industry on your college campus? Well, you should check out KCSU and their podcast department. 90.5 KCSU is Colorado State University's student-run radio station where you can be involved with music, news, sports, and even production and podcasting. Come on down into the basement of the Lori Student Center and talk to a staff member today. Just remember to follow the music. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and sometimes... Things are just weird. So here's a couple of the weirdest stories I found from around the world today. The Quebec Dairy Board is being employed to examine why and how Canada's butter is suddenly mysteriously harder. According to Canadian Television News, a large number of Canadians have been anecdotally claiming that their butter is harder than usual. Sylvain Cherboy, a senior director of Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab, says that, quote, Many Atlantic Canadians have noticed that butter is harder. This has put the dairy sector on the defensive because it's obvious something is going on, end quote. Use of palmitic acids in the cow's feed is one plausible cause, he said. While palm oil and its derivatives are in many things, dairy should be treated differently because it is a government-subsidized industry in which Cherboy believes more transparency is deserved. Dairy boards in Quebec are now set to look at the issue, which he speculates could trigger regulatory changes involving limits or penalties, something seen in other parts of the world such as Europe. David Christensen, an emeritus professor at the University of Saskatchewan, who's often consulted by major players of the dairy industry, says that he is devising more research into the issue of hardness, adding that contrasts between Canadian butter and imported butter need to be examined, as does processing, storage, and temperature conditions, and palmic acid differences. Christensen said, quote, Industry doesn't know if it has a real problem, a manufactured problem, or something else, but it is on the minds of consumers. It also has dairy producers concerned. End quote. Two years after the viral ice cream challenge, where people posted videos of themselves licking ice cream in the grocery store and then leaving it in the store, Arizona has now made that action a crime. According to Ray Stern at the Phoenix New Times, the bill, SB 1167 passed with two-thirds support in the Arizona Senate and nearly unanimous support in the Arizona House, and was signed into law on February 18th. The new law makes it a Class 1 misdemeanor to intentionally introduce, add, or mix, quote, any bodily fluid or foreign object not intended for human consumption with water, food, or drink, end quote. That's if a person actually consumes the produce or the damage of the contamination is at least $1,000. If no one consumes the contaminated produce and the damage is less than $1,000, it is still a Class 2 misdemeanor with potential for four months in jail and a $750 fine. A final provision allows the, quote, Calculation of damages caused by the contamination to include A, the cost to clean and sanitize the contaminated area, and B, any monetary compensation given to a human being who consumed the contaminated water, food, or drink, or other product. The law will take effect 90 days after the legislature adjourns. It's unclear how many people are still trying the 
ice cream challenge, but enough revolting videos surfaced in 2019 to dispel any notion that this was just an urban myth. It seemed to start with a video of a Texas teen licking ice cream and putting it back that went viral, leading to her referral to juvenile justice authorities. The act was followed by multiple copycats, including a Louisiana man who was later told to pay $339 or serve 34 hours of community time, another ice cream licking Texan who was sentenced to 30 days in jail plus fines and restitution, and a Florida woman who was charged with a misdemeanor after filming her daughter licking a tongue depressor in a doctor's office. Instances of the trend in 2020 have had a coronavirus motif, including a Pennsylvania woman who caused $35,000 of food to be destroyed after she intentionally coughed on it, and a man who being charged for licking a row of deodorant cases after asking on video, quote, who's scared of the coronavirus, end quote. A wanted man handed himself to the police because he was fed up with the people he spent lockdown with. According to Sam Dixon French at the West Sussex County Times, police officers in West Sussex, England, received a phone call February 18th from a man wanting to turn himself in. According to a tweet posted by Sussex Inspector Darren Taylor, quote, Peace and quiet. Wanted male handed himself in to the team yesterday afternoon after informing us he would rather go back to prison than have to spend more time with the people he was living with. One in custody and heading back to prison to serve some further time on his own. End quote. Socializing outside one's household is currently banned in the UK, which may have been why the caller was stuck in this unpleasant living situation. Sussex police have not released the identity of the man. That's all I have for you today. My name is Avi Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Like the show? Make sure you check us out on Spotify at KCSU News. And now, for the weather. This week is starting off much warmer than last week as we saw Monday and Tuesday with partly cloudy skies and a high of 53 and a low of 22 for Tuesday. Wednesday, you can expect a pretty steep change with snowy skies and a high of 34 with a low of 16. Winds will be moderate with speeds reaching up to 10 miles per hour. Thursday, the sun will peak back out with a lower chance of snow and a high of 36 with a low of 19. And for Friday, you'll just have to listen in to the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. on 90.5 FM or online at kcsufm.com news. You can also tune in on Spotify after the show if you miss any part of our segments. Information for today's segment comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without your dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.